Hi, this is David Shirley from Irish Funds. In our second podcast episode, we look forward to the investment landscape in Europe in 2021, bearing in mind the ongoing Brexit trade deal negotiations, the impact of the pandemic and the results of the recent US election. This was originally broadcast as a webinar panel discussion on the 3rd of December. It is moderated by Michael Padroni of the Managed Funds Association in Washington, DC, and features Liz Martins, economist with HSBC in the UK, Dr. Kristen Schultz, economist with City, based in Frankfurt, and the former Irish Minister for European Affairs, Lucinda Creighton, who is now a public affairs consultant with Falcon. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our discussion on the European investment landscape in 2021. A big thank you to our hosts, Irish Funds. I'm Michael Padroni, Executive Vice President and Managing Director for International Affairs at the US-based uh, Trade Association Managed Funds Association. MFA represents the uh, global alternative investment fund industry, and we are uh, very grateful for our strong relationship with Irish Funds and for them organizing this event. Um, it's my pleasure now to introduce uh, to you our panelists for today's session. Uh, first, we have uh, Lucinda Creighton um, is the CEO of Vulcan Consulting. She's former Irish Minister for European Affairs and uh, former member of the Irish Parliament. Uh, Christian Schultz is uh, Citibank's director and lead economist for Germany, the UK and Switzerland, and he's based in Frankfurt. And Liz Martins is senior economist at HSBC, covering the UK through uh, the Brexit referendum and uh, multiple uh, general elections. Um, so just on a, a note of housekeeping on behalf of our um, hosts, if you would like to submit questions, uh, please do so through the chat function. Um, and uh, I understand that this uh, session is also being recorded. So with that, let's get started. Um, we'll address uh, three broad topics with implications for the economic outlook and investment. And those three topics today are going to be Brexit, elections, and the uh, pandemic. Um, so with that, um, you know, Christian, I'd like to start with you. Um, from an economic standpoint, and, and we're on Brexit now, from an economic standpoint, what's at stake uh, with the uh, trade talks between the EU and the UK? What happens to growth and to trade if no deal is reached? Well, there's stakes for the UK itself, there's stakes for the EU, and then there's stakes for the relation uh, between the two. Uh, starting with the UK, um, uh, obviously, you know, a, a Brexit deal would uh, lower tariffs. Uh, it would uh, allow a lot of freedom for the UK that it doesn't have so far to set regulation, immigration standards, uh, trade policy with third country, all of these uh, things. Um, for the EU, uh, a trade deal with one of its most important trading partners is equally uh, important. Uh, it also gets rid, if you like, of a sometimes awkward uh, member, uh, which allows perhaps further integration without the UK, so it has some positive consequences as well. And then for the two between themselves, hopefully a, a deal would be a starting point for more uh, integration and more cooperation going forward. So that's why a deal, I think, is still important. Yeah, and I would imagine, particularly in the context of the um, very significant um, uh, down down pull to growth from um, you know the, the current year, 
um, you know, anything that helps to support um, growth in the UK and EU is, of course, helpful. Um, Liz, I want to ask you a little bit about the composition of, um, of, of trade that you would anticipate if, if no free trade agreement is reached between the UK and the EU, you know, and you project this forward a little bit, what does this do to um, the UK's trading basket and its, the composition of its trading partners? So I think broadly we can say that similar trends are going to emerge whether there's a deal or no deal. A no deal uh, end to this transition period will be much more chaotic uh, in the near term. But both a deal and no deal result in the UK having more frictions with its main trading partner in the EU. Um, now, for many, um, the, the Brexit optimists, the Brexit bulls, um, that's great news because it means that we can open up to other markets uh, in the future. And maybe, as your question implies, uh, export and import a little bit less with the EU and a little bit more, uh, maybe with some of the faster growing economies and the emerging markets and, and so on. And certainly, you know, if you listen to the UK's trade minister, Liz Truss, she's very ambitious about all the trade deals the UK is going to do going forward with new partners, you know, Australia and New Zealand and the Trans-Pacific partnership um, with the US. Um, and I think that's all that's all great. Uh, but there are a few caveats. And, and, and one is that, you know, particularly in a no deal, um, you know, the UK would lose significantly access to our nearest neighbours and our biggest trading partners. So any deal with all those new trading partners needs to be disproportionately favourable to the UK to compensate for that uh, lost access. And, and, and in this global trading environment, it's not clear that they uh, necessarily uh, would be. Um, of course, trade deals take a long time. I know we've tried to rush this one through um, in, in, in a couple of years, and it's not clear yet whether it's going to uh, materialize or not. But generally speaking, the, the deals that we might do with the US, with Australia, New Zealand might take um, a bit longer. And then, of course, there is the, the fact that geography does matter. Um, now, again, the Trade Minister Liz Truss has talked about you know, modern technology freeing us from the tyranny of geography. So now we have things like 3D printing, and of course the UK is a big, uh, play, a big player in, in, in tech. She's saying we can export our apps and our robotics and all that stuff. Um, and, and in some ways that is, of course, absolutely true and, and part of the UK's future trade profiles. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, a lot of a lot of trade is still about the basics, you know, food and, and, and cars and parts and, and, and physical goods. And in those cases, geography uh, absolutely does matter. I think particularly in a world where we're looking to reduce emissions, you know, the UK is aiming towards net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And in that case, it makes more sense to get something from France than, than to get it from Australia. So geography does uh, still matter, I think. Yeah, I mean, that certainly stands to reason that uh, you want to have a, a tight trading um, relationship with your, your closest neighbors, particularly when they're, um, you know, uh, advanced economies and, you know, major sources of, um, of consumption. Um, Lucinda, which, you know, then turning to you, I mean, what it strikes me then is that um, I'm probably not saying anything too surprising, but it's not just about economics here, it's about politics as well. Um, and, uh, you know, so what, what's at stake politically for the UK and the EU um, and, and, you know, including Ireland? I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on what's at stake for Ireland here. 
Okay, thanks. It's a it's a big question. So, I mean, this is the highest possible political stakes stakes in a sense, um, in that nobody knows what Boris Johnson is going to do or what he really wants, and we are beyond the eleventh hour in these negotiations. So, you know, the the expectation was that certainly by the middle of November, that you know, a gun would be to the head of both the EU and the UK, and that sense would prevail and a deal would be done. And here we are. Um, already in December with a very, very short and narrowing window of opportunity to ratify a deal. And uh, and honestly, nobody is any the wiser in Brussels or Dublin as to what Boris Johnson really wants. You know, so it's a calculation. It's a deeply political calculation for him. Um, you know, does he avert the sort of chaos that we could anticipate on the 1st of January in ports um, if tariffs have to be applied? if um, UK uh, imports and exports are subject to quotas and vice versa, um, or, uh, you know, does he calculate that 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 um, that's a risk worth taking? The economy is already in flux and it's better to be able to blame the EU um, and and just pile the blame onto, onto the EU interlocutors and say it's all their fault. We were prepared to do a deal, but they weren't respecting our sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, if, you know, my political intuition tells me he will want a deal, that he will not bring that sort of carnage upon him and his, his, uh, his citizens at this already very difficult and challenging um, moment. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I really, you know, even the back channel um, diplomatic information coming from London um, is not sort of divulging anything. Um, so nobody really knows. Um, the stakes are much higher for the UK than they are for the EU in reality. Um, you know, I think, um, I think um, uh, both uh, both Chris, Chris and Liz have, have outlined already you know, the sort of the economic imbalance, um, you know, it really doesn't matter a whole lot to the to the rest of the EU, apart from Ireland, primarily and the Dutch to a lesser extent, uh, what happens here. I mean, you know, they will get on with it um, and continue with their economic models by and large. And so there'll be limited, um, limited political fallout. But unfortunately for the UK, access to its neighbour and its biggest market will have significant economic and therefore political ramifications. So the stakes are higher. For the UK, yeah. yeah, that's that's really interesting. One of the you know things that that we follow at MFA very closely is is obviously financial services. Um, you know, given that we represent um, the hedge fund industry and credit fund industry, and you know, so so there we've been you know cognizant of the fact, obviously, that uh, financial services is not really part of the free trade agreement that's being um, discussed. And, um, you know, one of the questions we're asking ourselves as we look at the, uh, you know, at, at the terrain um, is whether the EU itself will increasingly look inward for the provision of financial services or whether, um, you know, whether uh, London will continue to be able to export those financial services into the EU. Liz, let me let me start with you on that um, and get your perspectives. Sure. Well, I think this is a really important question. Of course, financial services is absolutely key to the UK economy. And I think going back to a point that we've touched upon slightly um, so far, um, you know, the impact of Brexit on top of COVID um, and, and whether, whether because we've had such a big fall in GDP because of COVID, actually Brexit doesn't matter very much. Why we particularly disagree on that is that COVID has been really, really painful to specific sectors, namely hospitality services, anything that gathers large numbers of people together. Um, 
you know, we're recovering from that, um, despite, you know, the setback of the second lockdown. Um, but, um, you know, what we really don't need is for the, the parts of the economy that haven't taken such a hit to suddenly have a big shock too. So manufacturing and particularly financial services. Um, now, just to recap on where we are on financial services, the EU has offered um, unilaterally equivalents for, uh, sorry, the UK has offered EU firms operating in the UK equivalents, uh, but the EU has not reciprocated. And part of that is because the EU wants to know does the UK want to um, diverge on regulation after, um, you know, at the beginning of next year? Now, I think the whole point of Brexit is the UK does want to retain the right to diverge on all kinds of things. Um, and so the UK hasn't committed to, to, to not diverging. And as such, there's a delay in this equivalence agreement. It doesn't look like it will be done um, by the beginning of next year. Um, now, I do think financial services, because the regulators have demanded it, are among the most prepared sectors for Brexit. You know, the ECB and the regulators have, have asked them to prepare for all scenarios. Um, but a lot, is, a lot of the time, um, the answer that financial firms have come to is to simply relocate operations and activity to elsewhere in the EU, to Frankfurt, to Dublin, um, to Amsterdam, to many other places. So, you know, banks will say, we'll do everything we were doing for you, but we'll have to do it out of, in HSBC's case, our Paris office. Um, so that means, you know, that, that, that yes, the more activity will come from inside of the EU and it's not going to be a, you know, a, immediate crash for, for the financial sector in the UK but it's a gradual loss of market share I think um, over the years and, and and that's that's you know it's not a loss for the banks and the financial institutions themselves it's a loss for the UK. That's interesting so in a sense the you know if we're thinking about this purely mercantilistically in a sense the EU strategy it, it seems to be working in that it is drawing some of the financial services industry into the EU uh, you, you mentioned, you know, the banking sector that, you know, parts of the banking sector are simply moving uh, into the EU. We see it, you know, on the asset management sector side, it feels a little bit different where, you know, I think particularly, you know, when you look at hedge funds, they have a long, you know, tradition of operating in, in London and are, are, you know, a bit less clear whether they're going to be uh, moving into um, the continent. Um, Christian, you know, you, you focus certainly on Europe, but you also uh, focus in particular on on Germany. Um, what's at stake here? I know, you know, um, uh, without being an expert, I know, of course, Germany directs a lot of its um, automobile exports to um, the UK. Uh, but maybe you could unpack all of this from Germany's perspective for us. Yeah, I mean, as I hopefully sort of got across in my first intervention, I'm trying to look for the opportunities here and just accept the reality that Brexit is going to happen. And of course, it's going to damage um, both sides and agree with uh, Lucinda and, and Liz that the UK is probably going to suffer a bit uh, more than the continent. Um, Germany, um, you know, stands for goods trade for manufacturing. Um, the UK um, has, you know, is one of the most important uh, export markets for uh, Germany generally and for car manufacturing, specifically the key industry uh, over here. Uh, it must be said that the UK has kind of slid down the, the rankings in recent years. At the time of Brexit in 2016, it was second or third largest exports market is now down to fifth and probably sixth uh, in 2020. Uh, and, you know, the, the direction is um, uh, very specific, is very clear here. Um, so I don't think that the immediate shock uh, for the manufacturing sector uh, will be 
too large, but it is definitely a loss. And it's not just loss sort of mercantilistically for German exports. There's a lot of companies, German companies, that have big bases, manufacturing bases in the UK and are going to suffer both ways, right? Because they can't sell as much as they used to to the UK and they will struggle to get their stuff out of the UK uh, and into their production processes uh, and then into the rest of the world. So that's really, I think, bad news. And I struggle to make any kind of opportunity out of this. But on the services uh, side, there are opportunities, right? Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the Germany has been sort of outsourcing, if you like, financial services uh, over the years uh, to, to London and, uh, you know, living and working in Frankfurt. That has, um, you know, really led to a kind of brain drain and capacity and capital drain uh, out to London. It has diminished Frankfurt's stature as a, as a European financial center. And, of course, Brexit presents a certain opportunity, kind of a, a, a shot of new blood um, that you see here. There's people here. There's, I myself. Um, transferred uh, from London to uh, Frankfurt after eight years um, last year. Uh, and this is a, a, a shot, you know, this is a positive thing uh, for Frankfurt. Um, whether sort of on aggregate for Europe, this is actually a good thing because, you know, you could argue that London's been making financial services very productively and that's why it's succeeded over the last 45 years uh, and Frankfurt hasn't. Uh, now Frankfurt gets this opportunity to do it, but presumably at a lower productivity, more expensively, less, um, you know, with less liquidity perhaps than London did. And so on aggregate, it's probably a bad thing. But for Frankfurt uh, and for Germany, uh, at least in the short term, it's uh, something positive. And I think the opportunity for all of Europe is to uh, now um, take this shot of life that the financial sector gets over here, improve regulation, um, to uh, harmonize regulation, to create that common liquidity pool, which, you know, if they achieve it, could be so large that Europe really does become um, a competitive financial center as well, the EU. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see Germany's um you know, adoption of a leadership role in trying to define a capital markets union and a, and a um, you know, cement the banking union as well. Definitely, you know, being a watcher of European policy and regulation, uh, I do detect a shift in Germany since the uh, period of Brexit where they, they really do seem to be uh, trying to develop Europe's financial markets. Um, Lucinda, um, you know, one of the things that um, always intrigues me is is the Irish, um, the, the border issues. Um, and, and in particular, you know, I, I guess the question I have is if an FTA is not agreed in these, you know, coming, coming days, and uh, I would presume, you know, we're literally talking about days now where, you know, uh, where you would need to have agreement in order to get through the process of ratifying it through parliaments. Um, but so if, if there is no FTA, what happens to the um, border for for goods. I mean, specifically, would you know, would the UK tolerate a border in the Irish Sea? Would the EU tolerate a border between um, Ireland and Northern Ireland? And and I'm thinking more in terms of goods. Yeah. I you know I don't suspect that there's going to be kind of a traditional you know hard border where you know people arrive and have a difficult time crossing. But I think in, with respect to uh, goods exports, it it looks quite a bit different to me. And I wonder if you could help to unpack that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very contentious one. Um, so, I mean, the, the withdrawal agreement, which um, the UK government and the EU signed up to a year ago was supposed to resolve all of this. Um, and effectively, the UK government did sign up to um, a border of sorts in the Irish Sea. Um, the commitment to the EU was that there wouldn't be no physical border 
and no requirement for checks on goods between the north and south of Ireland. And that is inextricably linked with the peace process and our history of terrorism and violence um, on the island of Ireland. Um, so that was all great and everybody, everybody was very pleased with that, that outcome. It wasn't quite the backstop, um, not to bore you, which uh, the Irish government and the EU sought. It was a slightly watered down version of that. So Boris Johnson was able to sell it as a victory. It was, it was better than the deal that Theresa May had, crucially, and the EU was still able to, to live with it. So it was sort of everybody was happy. Unfortunately, the, the UK government suddenly and without any warning and to the absolute fury of everybody in every EU capital um, introduced the Internal Markets Bill a couple of months ago, which um, basically unpicks that deal, that internationally binding agreement, um, which was signed by the UK government and ratified in Westminster, um, and of course ratified by the EU as well. Um, so, so the answer is we have no real clarity. I mean, if you go on the basis of internationally binding law, then then there should be no issue about the border between the north and south of Ireland, and any phytosanitary checks and customs checks would happen um, effectively between the UK and Northern Ireland. Um, but in reality, the UK government has basically set out its intent to breach that agreement. So I think we could be in a real crisis in terms of what would happen next if there is no FTA. Um, and that will have um, far reaching consequences in terms of political stability in Northern Ireland um, and potentially the future of the union in my view. I, I mean the, the United Kingdom, not the European Union. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, the EU will have an obligation to, to protect the single market. So, if the UK doesn't abide by its side of the bargain, then um, then the European Union will have no choice but to protect the single market. And that means the Republic of Ireland um, would be treated differently to 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 Northern Ireland. Nobody wants that outcome. Everybody is committed to avoiding that outcome. Um, it's something that even the president in the president-elect of the United States has spoken about in, in recent days. Um, so it's, it's not just a, a, a sort of an Anglo-Irish issue. It's not even just a UK-EU issue. It's actually a very important international issue because it's an international peace agreement which um, has held together the peace in Northern Ireland for the past 22 years. Yeah, I, I'm here in, in Washington, D.C., and I, I can certainly attest to the fact that there's a lot of uh, attention paid in our um, in the incoming administration, as well as in uh, Congress to um, the Irish question. Before we turn to that in a bit more detail, um, we do have a question from a, a participant who's looking at, um, you know, uh, the UK, I think in the long trajectory of, um, you know, its future and is asking the question, is there the danger that the UK will become the new Argentina uh, in the sense that I, I think what they mean here is, you know, if you look at Argentina's trajectory over the last 100 years, it went from being one of the most, you know, advanced economies to uh, clearly, you know, not um, a strong. The way the, the question is framed is a strong economy uh, that goes into a period of slow decline and stagnation due to political and economic missteps. So I don't know who wants to take that one, but I think Liz, let's look. Let's go to you. Well, I certainly hope not. Um, look, Argentina has a financial crisis every 10 years. They have massive debt defaults. They have big collapses in the currency. I, I don't think the UK is there yet. There is still sufficient confidence in the UK's institutions and establishments and reputation 
um, that I don't think we would be looking at anything uh, quite so drastic. Um, if you're saying over the next 50 years, will the UK diminish as a power on the global stage and economic stage? And I think, yeah, unfortunately, I think probably uh, that might be much more likely. But hopefully we don't turn into, um, I don't want to use the phrase economic basket case, um, but, you know, the kind of the kind of features that, that Argentina has suffered greatly from um, over uh, over the years. So I certainly hope not. And I think it's not not on our horizon in the near term. But if you if you want to look for parallels, I think there was a Times article today um, where they drew those parallels more in the short term, not that over the last 100 years, but just in 2020, because it appears that the UK and Argentina were the two worst performing economies uh, um, in um, in the world, uh, or at least in sort of developed uh, world um, in 2020. Um, and there are other parallels that this author um, seeks to draw. But I agree with Liz. I think um, you know I I have you know from a German perspective I've. Uh, still strong confidence in the UK's institutions. Um, yes, you know, leaving the EU raises the kind of risks, but in both ways, um, it raises the downside risks, but it does give um, certain additional degrees of freedom on uh, things like immigration regulation, tariffs, and so on, which, you know, if they are exploited to the full uh, and in the most positive way, may indeed create long-term opportunities. I wouldn't dismiss that. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, really a, a last question I have for, you know, for all of you, or, or actually, you know, Krishna, I'd like to send this your way, um, but I'd love to hear from Lucinda as well. You know, we, we've been looking at this from the perspective of the UK, but what does the EU lose without the UK uh, inside the tent? How will European you know, politics and economic strategy look different without the UK there? Well, I mean, from my perspective, it makes life a little less comfortable. Um, you've got less um, sort of control, if you like, uh, over uh, the UK. The UK, if, if it's run well, can now turn into a strategic competitor um, who will uh, not be an easy country to work with and one which, you know, as you can see in this race for the vaccine at the moment, uh, will exploit any kind of weakness or, or sort of slowness that it sees um, and exploit it to its economic and political uh, benefit. Um, and that may you know, be something, it may be a thorn in the side on, on many ways, even in a friendly way, uh, it may. Um, the opportunity again in that is of course that the, UK, that the EU itself, it keeps the EU on its toes. It makes, you know, you know competition is, is usually a good thing um, and uh, hopefully you know, it will lead to uh, some, some uh, positives. I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, the EU, the UK stands for free trade and expansion, or, you know, accession and so on. And indeed, you know, the, the, the EU loses an advocate uh, for these things. But I think there's other countries that have already organized quite well, as you can see, with the Hanseatic League and the Dutch and the Irish and so on, uh, all making their, their voices heard much more loudly than in the past when they perhaps relied too much on the UK doing their bidding. Lucinda, yeah. you have views on that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think um, the UK will be a huge loss um, from a, I suppose, an ideological uh, and values perspective within the European Union. Um, so I do think that there is a risk that the EU will become more protectionist, um, and I, there's a risk that the sort of the completion of the single market, which is still a long way off, um, not just you know in the context of capital capital union and capital markets union and banking union, but, but, but across digital services, et cetera. I mean, these are all areas where um, I, I think the, the, the UK for 20, 25 years has been an advocate of, you know, of uh, deregulation um, and of smooth processes across um, European borders. 
Um, so I think that's that's a real a, a real loss. Um, obviously, tax competition as well. Of course, you know different people and different member states will have different perspectives, but um, certainly from an Irish perspective, you know the UK was a really important ally in resisting moves for tax harmonisation at EU level, and I think we're going to see movement in that direction. Um, however, it comes about, uh, and again, I think that 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 is something that I would perceive as being a negative, and uh, and I think um, the UK will be a loss. Um, I think the trade agenda is going to proceed. I mean, you know, we're living in a different global environment now for 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 international trade, so things have changed, and it's much more challenging than it was in the 90s when you barely even had to explain why you wanted to conclude a trade a, a trade agreement with a third country. Um, so you know but but the eu i think stands as a beacon actually when you look at all of the free trade agreements that have been concluded um even since the uk voted for brexit um you know you've you've, you've singapore japan canada etc so it's one area where i think the eu will continue to try to lead um although the global environment is obviously more difficult now well you know brexit is one of the uh big um uh, uh, injectors of uncertainty right now um, you know, another uh, big uh, uh, factor is is elections, um, you know, primarily the U.S. election outcome, but there are uh, elections elsewhere. And uh, Lucinda, staying with you for a moment, what does the uh, incoming U.S. Biden administration mean for um, the transatlantic relationship? Um, I think it's extremely positive. Um, I, I think if you if you look at the early appointments um, in the in the uh, incoming administration, the likes of Tony Blink and Jake Sullivan, these are transatlanticists. These are people who want to see uh, the United States back at the table in various multilateral uh, organizations. You know, they are. Uh, people who have a strong affinity, not just with Europe, but with the European Union, with the EU institutions, and the and the his they understand the history that led to its creation and has led to, to sort of further integration over over the decades. So um, it's and, and Biden himself, I mean, he's written uh, extensively um, over the years, and uh, even even in the last six months, he had a really interesting piece in in Foreign Affairs where he sort of expressed his vision. Um, for the transatlantic relationship and the the relationship between the the U.S. and its its um, traditional allies and partners, so I, I think it's very positive. I don't think we need to be naive. You know, we have a trade war over um, state aid, um, Boeing, Airbus. We you know we have a lot of very complicated issues to overcome, but at least there is a desire on both sides to try to do that. So that makes a very welcome change. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Liz, looking at the economic implications of the um, Biden administration, what does it mean for U.S. growth and, and therefore global growth? Sure, yeah. Well, I think the U.S. obviously still matters a great deal for global growth. Um, you know, the strength of U.S. demand not only um, stimulates sentiment across the world and market activity across the world, but also demand for uh, exports for, from, from all over. Um, so what happens in the US does really matter for the global economy um, and for all of us. Um, and I think it's, at the moment it's really hanging in the balance of this, these two se uh, seats that are being um, run off in, in Georgia. So we, whether Biden obviously gets his majority in the Senate or not, if he does, then he can push through really quite a different agenda on the fiscal side. Um, as you know, so, so big spending on, on green energy and infrastructure, um, but also some significant tax rises as well on higher maybe on reversing some of the Trump tax cuts on on corporations so those could have very different 
uh, implications. Um, I think at the moment, um, the US economy just needs some short term uh, stimulus and there's some support because actually the COVID situation in the US, I, I, I believe, is, is is not really stabilizing or remains at a very critical point. And, and the economy is, is it, it, you know, risks, um, you know, having a bit of a, a relapse like we've seen um, here in Europe. And, and particularly if Joe Biden comes in and he's more amenable to uh, to some kind of lockdown and, and, and restrictions. Um, so there's a lot of kind of moving parts. Um, but I think net net, I think the, uh, you know, if he does have that majority, um, it probably is, is positive for US and global growth because actually that infrastructure spending program is likely to go ahead. And he might find that in a difficult economic and political climate, actually pushing through tax rises um, is, is not as easy as it seems when, when you're pushing it as a pre-election policy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're tracking very closely here is the discussion um, on, a, on a, another phase of uh, fiscal stimulus. And of course, you know, everything, as you say, Liz, will turn on how these two um, elections uh, for uh, the Senate in Georgia turn out or, you know, uh, runoff elections in Georgia turn out mm -hmm. for the Senate. But um, Christian, assuming that um, assuming that the Republicans hold at least one of those, and so therefore in the Senate, um, you do not have a Democrat majority. So you, you have uh, Mitch McConnell as um, as the leader. Uh, you know, we would anticipate that that means a you know, significantly lower ability to push through um, large fiscal stimulus packages. If that's the case, you know, how does that affect the outlook? And, and you know, I would presume that puts a lot more pressure on, on monetary policy as well. Indeed, it would. Although I'd say, you know, um, Biden, whatever happens, uh, is probably going to start his presidency with one of the best economic years in the U.S. ever in terms of year on year growth rates. Right. I mean, that is. And if he was his predecessor, I think, you know, and be tweeting about this, I, I think you'd be pretty sure that uh, he'd, um, he'd, uh, he'd tell us about it. Um, but obviously, that's not his um, his. Um, his, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his merit, um, uh, you know, if fiscal policy is effectively disabled uh, in the US, um, I mean, we've been there before in 2011 with the downgrade and the, uh, you know, debt ceiling and, and all of these issues uh, and all the consequences that has for markets um, uh, and, and therefore then translates to the rest of the world. I don't think Europe in particular would be uh, most affected. I think it's more a problem for uh, emerging markets where you know if if um, you know have a big risk off move everything moves moves back into the dollar then uh, emerging markets which Liz is probably a bit a better expert on than me but um, you know they would probably suffer and that then has repercussions for us in Europe because we tr tend to trade much more with emerging markets than the US at least relative to our e economies um, but directly I don't think I think directly what matters most uh, is uh, the, the trade policy. And the US trade policy, and in particular, the relationship with uh, China. I think we all know that um, this is not uh, something that is just driven by Trump, this um, uh, antagonism, but this is something that is deeply rooted uh, across the board in the, in the US. So we're not expecting everything to be um, nice uh, very, very quickly, but I do think there will be less uncertainty. There will be more predictability about the US-China relationship, and that reduction in uncertainty itself both for the investment outlook, but especially for the sort of real economic outlook for companies investing and trading with China, I think will matter a great, great deal. And that I think is a real upside, irrespective of what happens to the fiscal side. 
having uh, you know worked um, in the White House myself at one point under um, at the time that Obama was in in the White House, you know one of the things I observed that really there are multiple poles of of stability when you look at you know kind of the global relationships and and one of those poles of stability is of course Germany as well. Um, you know, and we know that elections are coming up and that uh, Chancellor Merkel is not going to be uh, chancellor uh, for much longer. Um, you know, let me let me actually first come to you, Lucinda, and then back over uh, to you, Christian. You know, what what is your view, Lucinda, on how important Germany's elections are for um, global relations? This you know kind of um, U.S. China Europe um, set of tensions, but also just for for Europe in general for its growth. Yeah, I mean, hugely important. I don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of Angela Merkel um, in Europe since she, since she became chancellor 16 years ago. Um, if if I had one criticism, it would be her succession planning, which hasn't worked out very well, because um, we still have no idea what's going to happen there. But uh, no, she. I mean, I, I was I was um, obviously very involved during the financial crisis. I attended all of the EU summits with our Taoiseach, Prime Minister at the time. Um, and Merkel was um, a hugely important, not, I mean, she didn't get everything right, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, her approach was very cautious and incremental. Um, but in a way, it had to be because, you know, Europe, uh, I think actually she has managed to bring Europe a little bit closer together, the North and the South, um, especially when you look at the response to COVID, which is so different to, um, to the response to the financial crisis. Um, but at the time she was, you know, she was challenged by the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, um, by, you know, a very hostile tabloid press, not dissimilar to, to what we've seen in the UK, very Eurosceptic. And so she had to bring all of these elements together while, you know, while dealing with what was happening in Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, etc. So Italy. Um, so I, 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 I think she was the glue. Um, I think it's arguable as to whether we would actually have a euro currency right now if it weren't for Merkel. I know that sounds dramatic, but uh, I think her interventions, Mario Draghi's, you know, critical speech, you know, do what it, whatever it takes. I mean, that didn't come out of thin air. It came on foot of a meeting between Merkel and I think Sarkozy at the time, um, if memory serves me. So, you know, everything that has happened has been, she has been very instrumental. And when you look at the compromise that was reached um, with amongst the heads of state and government in relation to uh, European uh, debt purchasing last June, um, again it was Merkel who made that happen. You know, um, so she is she is a she is a hugely important and historical figure in Europe, and I think um, I think we'll see that over the decades to come. Um, but I don't know who's going to replace her, and I'm quite concerned about that. Christian, do we need someone who is more? Um let's say, uh, fiscally uh, willing to step on the gas pedal in uh, Germany? Or what, what's your view on you know, what kind of successor uh, Germany would be a best place to have? Well, I mean, there's so many um, sort of fields where this will matter, right? I mean, you mentioned one fiscal policy, not so much in Germany, but in Europe uh, as a whole, um, you know, a fiscal hawk uh, in Berlin. Uh, certainly wouldn't be good for the market outlook for 2021. Um, and conversely, um, somebody who's more open to fiscal um, transfers to fiscal union or whatever you call it, uh, would be very uh, positive, I think, um, for the uh, outlook for 2021 uh, and beyond. Um, so that, I think, is a very important component. And it will not just depend on who replaces Merkel on the conservative side, but also who they go into coalition with. 
I think the ones to watch are the Greens. Um, they are almost more likely to be in the next government than the Conservatives themselves, irrespective of them polling lower, because they've got more options, basically, right? So the Greens are the, the ones to watch. Uh, so on European policy, um, there, there are sort of big stakes, but also domestically, right? I mean, Merkel's uh, 16 years have been uh, an extremely good period uh, for Germany, full employment most of the time. We weathered all of these crises relatively well. Uh, and also socially, you know, the involvement of women in the labor market has completely changed in these 16 years. Immigration-wise, you know, I was away for eight years. The Germany that I left is completely nothing to do with the Germany that I found when I uh, when I when I returned fiscally, we looked at, you know, lots of things have gone really well in those 16 years. A lot was luck. It was not Merkel's um, doing, but um, and, and a lot of things, I, I think, uh, you know, need to be shaken up as well. And there's a certain complacency which has developed over these 16 years. Uh, and so I think a bit of disruption wouldn't be too bad as long as it's confined to the domestic space, which wouldn't worry anyone too much, I think, outside Germany. Uh, and as long as there's continuity on the European side. Mm -hmm. So our third bucket of uh, topics, and, and we're running a bit short on time here, and I want to make sure I, I touch it, um, which is the impact of you know, where we are with the pandemic um, and the response to it. Um, you know, and, and a question has come in, and I, I actually had the same question uh, for all for, well, let's take, uh, um, Liz, let's ask you this. You know, Greenspan famously talked about irrational exuberance back in the late 90s, and this is a uh, question that somebody in the um, uh, participant has, are financial markets right now, um, you know, not reflecting the under, underlying economic risks? Um, I think I think you might make that argument around equity markets um, in particular. I think bond markets, you know, suggest that everything's going to remain quite quite weaker for, for a long time and, and interest rates are going to have to stay very low for a very long time. And, and that's probably in line with um, the underlying economic risks and, and, and weakness, but equity markets have regained a lot of their losses. And in fact, in, in the US, the S&P 500 is above its, you know, where it was at the start of the year, which is really quite incredible given the, you know, the, 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 the economic events that have happened since there. Uh, since then, in, in the UK, I think the stock market, the FTSE 100 has regained about sort of two thirds of its losses, which is in line with actually what GDP has done. Um, but, um, I would say, and we have these we have these team meetings in HSBC research, and we have our bond strategists and our economists who are ever the pessimists and talk about all the downside risks and all the bad things. And then we have our equity analysts, and they're always telling us that everything's fine, everything's wonderful. Um, and then that's kind of the the sort of natural bias to equity markets. And I think particularly as long as you have you know central bank policy incredibly accommodative, um, you know you're not earning any interest on on you know your savings rate or your your bonds or, or, or fixed income instruments. Then actually there's an inclination towards equity markets that keeps pushing it higher. Um, is there a risk of that bubble burst? Thing. I think if some of these downside risks to economic growth next year, if the vaccine doesn't turn out to be, um, you know, the panacea and fix everything, if actually um, there are long term consequences to what's happened in 2020, then, then maybe that is a risk for stocks. Yeah. What, what do you put the odds of a double dip recession uh, in uh, the EU and the UK? 
I think, you know, you know, as Christian mentioned with the, the US growth rate is going to be very strong this year, the same is probably going to be true in um, the EU and the UK, just because we're starting from such a low point. So, I mean, for all, all us economists who always made these predictions about Brexit, you know, if you'd have told us you're going to have Brexit and then you're going to get four or five percent growth in that year, um, we would have been very surprised. But that's what COVID's done to us. We're coming from such a low base um, that, that you're going to get a strong rate of growth. And, um, you know, in the same way that Christian mentioned what, what President Trump might say about uh, the growth rate, the, 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 the Brexiteers in the UK will, I'm sure, make the same claim. Um, but the reality is, I think that the risk of a double dip uh, recession is probably technically low. Um, what would worry us, though, is that, you know, we've had this big, these big swings about in the level of GDP, um, but we haven't had such of a reaction in unemployment. Um, so our worry would be that it won't feel, it may not be technically a recession, but it might feel like more of a recession if unemployment continues to rise um, through the next year, and particularly if governments start to um, withdraw the support that's kept that unemployment relatively low. What about the, um, you know, the the rollout of the vaccine? Um, you know, I, I confess I've been following it more closely here in the U.S. than I have been um, in the U.K. and the EU. Lucinda, how is that um, expected to progress? Uh, and do you expect any kind of, you know, distortion, significant material distortions in economic recovery trajectories as a result of the way in which the um, vaccine gets rolled out? Um, well, I mean, the EU uh, has been working really hard to try and coordinate the rollout, the response and the rollout. I mean, the fir first things first, um, the vaccines have to be approved in Europe. And uh, we've had a, we've had 24 hours of our nearest neighbours telling us, you know, how they've managed to approve first Pfizer vaccine because they're they're free from the shackles of EU membership etc um but I expect that the Pfizer vaccine will be will be approved I think um um by mid-December and then uh the the next one will be early the first week in January so we're not too far behind um I I, I mean most I think all member states now have a have a pretty clear um have pretty clear plans for the rollout of the vaccine um it's it's fairly centrally coordinated in terms of you know prioritization across the population um, and I think a very significant amount of that will be done within within the first quarter um, you know of course there are risks um, the the EU has has effectively centrally um, agreed the purchase arrangements with the pharmaceutical companies um, and uh, and it's it's effectively being allocated on a per 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 capita basis um, so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll ramp it up and manage to distribute as quickly as the United States. Uh, I think we could fall down in logistical um, provisions primarily, but uh, but I don't see any real reason why we should be so far behind. Christian, I want to give you the um, the last question here, which is um, really a, a synthesis of those uh, two questions I've just asked. One is your thoughts on um, whether uh, markets, financial markets are outpacing underlying economic fundamentals. And then secondly, whether you think there's, um, you know, what are, what are, let, let's put it this way, what do you see as the major risks to your economic forecast over the next six months? 
Um, well, I mean, in terms of the economy, obviously the pandemic is uh, going to be the big driver. We discuss it uh, at length. Um, I think we'll return to sort of political risks uh, in Europe, at least, um, uh, sort of in the medium term, because right now everybody's happy with the leaders They're delivering vaccines and all of these things. But once, you know, this is over, the honeymoon is over, people will look at the unemployment rates and, and things like that and will maybe turn to alternative leaders and that could cause disruptions. So I'm a bit worried about the long term impacts there. Uh, however, as long as we can avoid um, a big second recession or a long-term sort of um, secular stagnation, um, I think central banks will be there. They keep interest rates low, they buy stuff, liquidity will be abundant. And if you're in the equity market or any market really, um, that is a pretty good environment, right? Relatively limited downside, uh, very low alternative interest rates, reach for yield and all of these things. I think, you know, that's, that's, um, that, that is, I think, still a very uh, positive outlook for the, for the markets and also um, ultimately for the, for the, um, for the economy. On the vaccines, just one last thought. Um, I think, you know, the, the UK obviously charged ahead there, but, you know, a lot of countries on the continent probably could have done the same, but didn't. Uh, and that, I think, is a very positive sign of solidarity, right, that a rich country like, say, the Netherlands or uh, Germany gets the vaccine at exactly the same point, at the same rate of its population as a very poor country like Romania or Bulgaria. You know, that is that is solidarity. That is, shows the real benefit of being an EU member, especially to poorer countries. And I think that is really something to hope uh, to, to generate some, some positive hope for, for Europe. Great. Well, let's let's end it there on that uh, positive note. Um, Liz, uh, Christian, Lucinda, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I hope we get to do it again sometime. And thank you again to Irish Funds for organizing it. So that ends our panel. Have a great day, everyone.